Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hi, I'm Linda Regano, co-host of the WAM Podcast. It's an honor to be your host, where I get to introduce listeners to amazing women who are making a real difference. With our podcasts, you'll get to hear inspirational stories, both personal and professional challenges our guests have overcome, how their backgrounds help to shape who they are today, and how they're giving back to their communities and oftentimes the world. Joining me today, I'm very excited to have Stephanie LaPierre, who is a fearless champion for solving the huge data issues that procurement professionals face every day. Stephanie heads up Tealbook, a company that she founded that leverages artificial intelligence technology to improve speed, trust, and quality of supplier decisions. Here, enough from me. Let's hear all about it directly from Stephanie. Stephanie, thank you for joining our show. Thanks, Linda, for having me. So I just want to dive right in. I love to hear about people's backgrounds because it really speaks to who you are today and the things that impressed you most along the way. You have such an amazing background. You combine a, a lot of business knowledge with t- data technology and really understanding the pains or the pain points that professionals in supply chain are going through. Just if you would, maybe we could start off, tell your listeners a little bit more about your background and some of your early influencers. So I'm, I'm originally from Quebec, Canada. I learned, left Quebec, learned English when I was 18 and became a ski bum for a year or so before going to university and becoming more serious. <laughs> and my influences, I've all come from my, well, most of it come from my childhood initially. My family, you know, everyone in my family is an entrepreneur. And so uh, growing up with a family of entrepreneurs, my actually my grandfather had started Pepsi distribution and, and uh, or manufacturing and distribution of Pepsi in Quebec. And so he grew that. And Pepsi, I think in the world, has the highest market share above Coke in Quebec. And so I'd like That's to... amazing. <laughs> my <laughs> first influence had to do a lot with community and being really involved. And he unfortunately passed away when he was 60. And my grandmother was quite younger than him, who had three kids and had never worked a day in her life, decided to take over the business. And mm-hmm. she ended up hiring someone in finance and someone to in manufacturing supply chain to support her and uh, ran Pepsi from back then the 60s to uh, sold to PepsiCo in 1991. And so I, I had the opportunity to see this, you know, really impressive warm, very business-minded person who raised children, who had a family, influence really what I thought was just really impressive, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it speaks to the woman, I mean, the woman in your life were your role models. Yeah. And so, so that was definitely like the, yeah, that was the pivotal point. I've always known since I was a kid that I want to be an entrepreneur. It was always sort of my path and then grew to be, to, to be one. Yeah. And obviously family, education, hard work, those are all values that were uh, instilled early on. Even though you took a time off to be a a ski bum, but I understand that there was someone else that you had met there. You want to tell us about it? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that ages me, but I was a ski instructor in Whistler and Justin Trudeau was a snowboard instructor at the time. So it was very humble. I didn't know who he was. I knew his name was Justin. I knew obviously he was part of the same group of friends, but didn't realize he was Pierre Elliott Trudeau's son until well to the season. Um, <laughs> we both come a long way. Him, him as prime minister of Canada and me as an AI 
tech CEO. Well, and that's nice to know that he was a ski bum too. He was a ski bum. Yeah. So tell us about after college. I mean, you, first of all, you graduated early. I do want to mention that you graduated, I think in two and a half years. I did. So the, the system in Quebec is a little bit different. So it did expedite me by a year. But when I went to university, I just knew I want to start my own business. Um, I had started a business before that. In, back in Quebec, I had uh, partnered with two guys to build this corporate event business. And we had bought um, a production company. And so we were doing booking artists and, and putting together corporate events. I sold that. And then with my you know, small profit when to spend it uh, in Whistler. But I always had this appetite for business and wanted to go to university mostly to kind of spiral ideas and meet people that I would eventually, I was hoping that I could build businesses with. And it didn't happen. I went to university. I had a lot of ideas, but but it didn't, you know, I didn't, from university, didn't start my, my, my second business, but I want to be in and out. And so I took seven course per semester and decided to, to do that also through the summer. So an expedited version, I knew I wanted to get to work as fast as possible and not spend my time, you know, on the academics. And even after college, you though you had worked for various companies in the healthcare industry, I think, which is probably how you got your first introduction to how valuable data is, right? Yes. Well, my first job after university was a startup. Two guys had bought a publication in the healthcare space and they were building a medical communications agency. And mm-hmm. I was employee number four or five, didn't speak English very well. Anything <laughs> 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 about healthcare or pharma, I didn't have a science background, but I did fairly well with, with them just uh, learning really quickly, building relationship with customers. And so I got promoted really fast into being account management. So that was, you know, the, the direction of why I chose that company because I was interviewing with a lot of different organizations and did my BCom in marketing management. I was looking for marketing roles and I chose them because of the energy that they had and the credibility they brought and the fact that they were growing so fast. So in my time there, we went from five employees to about 50 in about mm-hmm. a year and a half. So it was pretty fast. And it was that the experience there really helped you because you started a business, a four-tailed book, I believe it was Matchbook, which was kind of a defining moment for you. Correct. So it, definitely my experience with those guys uh, helped shape my future building businesses, just the energy and the decisions. It was super, you know, really fun. I did go work for larger companies. I carried the bag, wanted to get some sales training became also did some product management. And then I got recruited by a company called ISM, IMS, sorry, who was eventually combined with Brogan. They sold prescription data to pharmaceutical companies. So that was my first sort of eye into the value of data. Saw obviously healthy margins in data, but just how much how much it helped shape how pharmaceutical companies were building their strategy for sales based on this this really valuable insight that they couldn't get anywhere else. So I was there for a period of time. And then my first agency ended up hiring me to build their U.S. Uh, division. And so I moved to Boston with my now husband and built out their U.S. division. So I was still fairly young, but meeting a lot of customers, building a pretty solid revenue stream. And I liked, I liked the win. I didn't love the account management side of it. And when I had my first daughter, I was traveling a lot. My husband was at a global position, so he was traveling a lot. And I decided to start just writing down the things that I loved. 
And I think that was a really defining moment. And when I do coach people now that are kind of in between roles, I encourage them to do this exercise because it just really showed me, I just wrote down all the things that I loved and the things that I was not good at that I wanted to avoid. And so by doing that, start recognizing that I love connecting with people. I love networking. I love to solve problems. All the things I love to build teams. And it led me to start a consulting firm that was a, a business that didn't really exist that I knew of to help organization find innovation. And so I was, you know, and it's pretty broad, but it was really helping companies who were facing some big challenges, typically commercially driven at the time. And through that process would bring in companies, suppliers that would present either their experience in solving similar problems or would bring brand new ideas to solve the problem. And it resulted, you know, continuously in very, very positive outcome for my customers. And it's at that point that a lot of my clients start asking if I could help them shape or help bring more efficiencies in their strategic sourcing function which 13 years ago was just starting to spin out of procurement as a as a, a function of procurement that was more strategic and aligned with the business but you st- you still had a lot of friction between procurement and and the business uh, stakeholders and so my clients were asking if we could bring some of the processes and some of the value creation of our own process into their strategic sourcing function so that was my first sort of real experience with procurement and um, saw a lot of friction that came from from strategic sourcing not having access to good information. And if you didn't have access to good information, it created friction because the employees just needed the information to be able to do their job and they couldn't get it fast enough or they had to go through a lot of hoop holes to get there. And that just created a lot of friction. Did you find that most of the processes there were just, I mean, that so many companies had manual processes that they just didn't know what to do with data? Well, remember like the seven step process of sourcing, right? Seven step is a lot of processes for someone in marketing or R&D or clinical that just wants to get (laughs) (laughs) They just want to get their job done. Yeah, we did a survey with the Hackett Group last year, the year before that said that from the moment someone has a business requirement to supplier being onboarded, ready to do the job is over 240 hours of work. Oh my God. Average. Even we did a survey with Wakefield recently that said that validating onboarding a supplier. So you've already identified who you want Uh an average of 21 days. And if you're Uh in the business and it's COVID days and you need to make decisions really, really, really fast, it's it's just too long. It's It's crazy. Yeah. So that, that's what led you then to create Tealbook. Well, so from that, a lot of my my friends and customers went on to build or lead biotech companies that were very early stage. So again, we're talking 13 years ago or so, 10 years ago. This, this, you know, the 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 massive biotech companies, especially being in Boston, and a lot of them just never had built biotech companies before. So suddenly, they have to build the entire infrastructure to launch their first global asset. And, you know, not knowing what you don't know, I spent a lot of time educating CFOs and COOs and CEOs on the value of building a transparent, scalable and enabling procurement function early on, because most of them don't think about it until it's compliance driven, or now they have to scale back spend for whatever reason, maybe their data didn't come out as good as they thought, 
or they're not getting the type of revenue or their shareholders are asking them at some point. And so I'd seen so much of the pitfalls of companies not bringing procurement early enough in the company's life cycle. I really just genuinely believed in the operational and financial efficiencies that could that procurement, good procurement could bring early on. And so I did this uh, so that that company Matchbook built it and brought in some of the best people in strategic sourcing and procurement in the biotech space. And I'm lucky today, I still own the company, but the team that's leading it, and I've made uh, someone partner to help really continue the company and build it and grow it. They've done amazing. And so, but they're very, very focused in in these uh, biotech companies. But that's sort of, you know, building the model, try different business model there to come to a point where we could actually scale and really cement the position and what we could do and do well. It took, you know, it took five, six years to get there and then to be able to hand it over to a team that could continue on building it in a way that I had set it up and even doing better, being more efficient at building it. That's been quite rewarding. And I've been completely hands-off for about three and a half years now. Obviously, I'm chairman and I, I, I attend, you know, important meetings and, and improve certain things, but I've been cash flowing that business from the beginning. I never borrowed never even got debt to support it. It's all been organic. So completely different experience, completely different business. Yeah, no, and that's amazing that you could do it that way. So tell us about Teal Book that led you, I think obviously those skill sets and the things that you learned applied across all supply chain. So Teal Book crosses over every industry. Am I correct? It it does, yeah. And I mean, I saw the, the need in pharma biotech first. So that's why we have a heavy customer base in that space. But the challenges are the same across every single sector and any size of organization who has, you know, there's a defining point where you have a number of suppliers where things become siloed and disparate and difficult to to harness and synchronize. And so it doesn't have to be that many suppliers because we do have some pre-commercial companies who maybe have seven, eight hundred suppliers and they're still struggling to be able to maintain information about the, the businesses that they do business with, let alone finding, especially if they're in high growth mode, finding the right suppliers fast enough to support the needs of the business. But what I saw in that experience, so I had experience with large Fortune 500 organization who had quote unquote sophisticated uh, procurement function and systems, and then was building procurement function from scratch with this really you know admirable vision to build good procurement. And what I saw with the smaller organization is as soon as you started in to introduce systems to capture different data point or workflow across the buying cycle, you started to create disparity in the data because now you have a little bit of data living in different systems that address different business requirements. And it's really difficult to start synchronizing this data. The only way you can really do it is start integrating systems to each other so now you need system integrators, you need internal IT uh, you know, resources, and there's a high dependency on suppliers to come and do it. And the reality is that they just don't. There's so many systems that they have to update that they, there's a very, very small percentage that do comply to getting good information. So then you have to revert back to services. And so I saw this as being a growing problem, and I saw this to be the key to all the friction that I saw in large organizations and that they had invested so much money in their system, believing that the system was going to solve their data problem. And it wasn't. And then I saw this movement 
five years ago where software companies in the space were, were communicating to the market that cloud technology was going to solve the data. Cloud technology was going to digitize the procurement function, was going to lead the digital transformation. And you hear this from, you know, the Ariba, Coupa, iValue, all of these different uh, software who have pretty significant relationships. And the analysts bought into this, right? So, you know, migrate to one suite solution that's cloud-based. It's going to give you visibility. I'm thinking that spend is a key driver to procurement's value. And spend is just one data point. It's an important data point, but it's one data point of all the information that you need to have on the, the, the businesses that you, you know, you've engaged with and trying to create, trying to deliver value or have to make different decisions. And, and both direct and independent and indirect spend. Well, across the board. Yeah. The difference there is that in your direct, you know, your, there's typically less suppliers and you, you know them more deeply, but it's still, there's still a lot of information that you need to continuously maintain and grab. And then you don't know what you don't know. And how do you share that, that data across the organization and across systems so that you have, you have, you know, consistency of the information that the organizations need to, you know, to have access to. And today it's just very fabulous. Give us an example, if you could, of just one example of how Chillbook's platform is helping a client. So kind of like a before and after, if you could, just to help our audience get a better sense of what you're doing. Yeah. So the way that we uh, have positioned Tailbook now is being the supplier data foundation that powers the buy side digital enterprise. And so what that means is that we, through technology at scale, we're able to use machine learning to extract information across 400 million plus sources to create a universal supplier record for every B2B company in the space, in the world, actually. And that, that universal supplier record can be uh, used by our clients to connect to their legacy system so that they can improve the ROI and the efficiency and the compliance of those systems, as well as all the digital solutions that they're they're bound and they're going to buy. And so instead of having to buy technology and make really hard decisions about where your data is going to live and how you're going to map that data to other systems through services and through IT resources and, and depending on suppliers to come in to maintain, you basically have a foundational piece of your technology that sits in the middle that allows your data to be self-enriched, self-maintained, and self-distributed across all your system. So give us an, an example of a company that, that you've worked with where it's been, you know, it, where it's helped them so much. Oh, I mean, there's a lot of different, uh, and I'm trying to think about who I can, I can and cannot name, but I'll give you a few examples of our client's uh, journey and then ROI. So the one thing that we do right from the beginning is take, you can take a, a vendor master of any size. It could be in the hundreds of thousands of suppliers globally. And when we unify back to Tealbook, we're able to give back to our customers their data with the light turn on. What that means is that it will show them exactly how many suppliers they do business with, which is shockingly lower than what they think. And so one example of that was a CEO that had pushed his procurement team to reduce their supply base by 50% within a calendar year, down to 30,000 suppliers. And so normally in, in normal ways, you go and trying to figure out how to consolidate and do a lot of sort of digging and conversations with suppliers. In this case, when we matched the data to Tailbook, we were able to show them that they had 26,000 suppliers, not 60,000. 
Ah, okay. They're pretty, they're pretty cool up front, right? It's a little embarrassing, but when you have data across multiple systems that you don't understand the dupl- like how they're duplicated and you're able to clean it and unify it back to one company, suddenly, you know, it gives you a lot of, of visibility. Uh, we're able to also uh, augment through machine learning how those suppliers should be categorized. And so something that you would typically do quite manually and over and over again, suddenly now you have a mechanism to predict with enough accuracy and confidence and quality how those supplies should be classified or categorized and forever. So do you ever say like how many hours you've, because just from what you've described, I would think that you save that company hundreds of hours, if not more, of a manual process. It's almost hard to quantify the ROI. So we we are, we have an amazing CS team that is working very closely on on building the ROI story because there's so much ROI coming out of having visibility into your data. And it's it really depends on your corporate priorities. For so for example, in that case, you know, reducing the supplier base by 50% or more than 50% was a win. But then how do you continuously drive compliance to your existing suppliers is another knowing how many, you know, suppliers that have 30 contracts across different uh, business units, then you can go and consolidate and have a first win there. Uh, And then other examples that are really different from each other, just to give you a sense, is one of our clients, a pharma company, was using Tailbook primarily as a first business case, because before you buy into the data foundation, you need first wins and, and, and identify where you can have some measurable benefits and see the improvement in your data they brought Tailbook in to have the, the visibility into suppliers that could drive hyper-competitiveness. And so if you could equip your category managers with a search engine that would give you similar suppliers uh, by geography, by qualifications, by size, by relevance, you empower them to be able to have access to information that would take a long time or market intelligence or market research. And so in this case, you know, where it's someone in the business that had been using the same piping supplier for a long time and the contract was, was coming to renewal and someone in procurement challenged them to see if there's an opportunity to send the contract to get to, to bid. And the, right away, the business pushed back and say, no, there's only one supplier that can do this type of piping. We're not going to challenge them. In normal circumstance, a category manager would go back to their desk and do some market intelligence and (laughs) maybe go on Google and then try to come back and influence the business. Probably by that time, the contract would have been renewed and the PO would have been issued. But in this case, having Tailbook allow that category manager to look up the company, find similar suppliers, filter by type of piping and by geography that were relevant to the pharma and biotech space and found six companies. And in that conversation, say, listen, I found six companies that look like they could do the same type of piping. Do you mind if we invite them to bid? It shouldn't take more than a week, but at least we will know if we can get the most value out of who we already engage with. And the business had no really way to push back. And so they did. In that one single sourcing event, they saved $25 million. Amazing. Right? Amazing. Yeah, no, that's huge. Huge, so, so huge value to influence and huge value to drive savings. Um, Absolutely. And then Stephanie, I just want to be careful about time because we've got we've got about five minutes and we've got a, a lot to cover. I was hoping that maybe you could talk a little bit about how you're coping with COVID nineteen and and in our previous conversation you talked about how the pandemic is really showing or has shown gaping holes in company supply chains. Could you talk a little bit about that and just what's 
what you're recommending going forward for these companies? Yeah, I, what I often say is it's unfortunate that it took a crisis of global proportion to highlight the need for data. I think what companies recognized is that when you have time to do your digital transformation, uh, you may delay things that may seem critical, but you're not quite sure yet how to go about it. Um, and what we saw with COVID is that organizations who spend millions of dollars in their technology stack were still paralyzed, not being able to leverage their existing supplier ecosystem effectively enough, let alone being able to find suppliers that you know could ensure business continuity or could allow you know uh, them to shift their production really quickly or find PPEs that met the requirements fast enough and. And so you saw very similar business case, but there was this massive disruption. And the reason supply chain was in so many of the headlines, and we're seeing this as a great opportunity, but it's really because we failed, right? We failed of having access to good information and, and failed to be able to be there for the business, even ahead of the business, in order to be able to adapt to market changes fast enough. And so, you know, I sit on a lot of thought leadership council and boards and the number one thing that is coming up all the time now is data. You know, how do we get good data into our system? How do we get good data in the hands of people making decisions every day? And so it's sort of, you know, we've made this massive investment in our technology and our data, and then now the market is really catching up. And it's not just the customers. Like we released, we announced to the market within the first week of COVID that we were going to give supplier lists for any organizations in the private and public sector that were disrupted. If they need to find suppliers, they could come in and complete a form on our website. And we support over 170 organizations in the first few weeks. I mean, mind-blowing, like Brooks Brothers looking for uh, suppliers of raw ingredients to make N95 masks, and they were able to produce over 100,000 in record time. And these are suppliers they never sourced before that they needed to not only find them, make sure they had the capacity, but also met the requirements and were able to then, you know, produce these masks. And there's poodles of examples of that. So that got us a lot of visibility. Uh, we got picked up by Forbes twice. We've got uh, large consulting firms like Accenture who came to us because their customers or the governments were looking for solutions. So we ended up landing the UK, helping them find over 60,000 manufacturers of PPE that were ISO certified. So you know, when you're looking at, at scale, how many companies they could find with the contact information, with the history of, of manufacturing PPEs, with the certification for quality, you're increasing tremendously the level of, of trust and speed. And, and then all the S2P and the software companies in our space, uh, I'd say all but the vast majority have come to us asking if they could integrate our data into their software because their customers were asking for better information. And if you're relying on the portal system to collect information, you just can't do it fast enough. And if you're producing analytics out of the data, you need really good data to be able to produce good analytics. And those software companies just don't have it at the speed and at the scale that they needed to have to respond to their customer needs. So you know, unfortunately, again, it took a crisis to, to, to make the market acutely aware of the importance of a solid data foundation. I mean, our pipeline grew almost 300% since April, and we're now going to another fundraise, not because we needed to, it's just opportunistically, we've got so much opportunities and, and we want to expedite how we're developing our proprietary data set so that we can continuously deliver more value to the buy side. 
That's great. You know, Stephanie, you, you just, everything that you're describing and, and this is, it's, and, and you're right, it, it's unfortunate it took a pandemic, but you, it sounds like you were really just out there and, and very generous in what you were doing for a lot of these companies who were struggling to, to, you know, make these kinds of uh, PPE supplies. Let's talk a little bit, just, I just want to bring it back to you a little bit more personally, if you could, because I feel like you could teach a masterclass in juggling. How do you manage it all? I mean, you're running a successful business. You're building, you know, a major, just, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing that you're doing here. You're serving on multiple boards. And not to mention, by the way, that you're raising three girls, I think you said under the age of 14. Yes. Yeah. So, what's your secret? You know, I, I, it's sort of one of those things when I was looking at Fertil book, I was seeing like that it just didn't exist, right? I was looking for a solution and it didn't exist. And I knew the solution. And you kind of come to the realization that, you know, there's all these other people that have built really successful companies. Like what's preventing me from being that person? <laughs> preventing me from being able to do it. And as I, you know, I made this commitment to build this company and make it successful. And then as you start getting customers, you're becoming more accountable. As you take people's money, you get investors, you become more accountable. As you, you build your team and you have employees and you're responsible for, you know, having them pay their mortgage and put food on their table, there's a huge amount of responsibility. And we have such a, 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 an opportunity. Like we have a very unique opportunity to build a multi-billion dollar company and that's founded and led by a woman, that would be sort of the icing on the cake to be able to do that. <laughs> and so I'm just really passionate about what we do. I believe in our mission. We're getting into some really interesting use case with supplier diversity, for example, um, especially with Black Lives Matter and companies are making much stronger commitment. And what we're doing is transformative for that space. It's really helping large organizations see you know their accurate diverse spend and that's helping small and diverse businesses get a lot more visibility and lowering the bar to be recognized and 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 grow their business so we'll definitely have to come back and i want to hear all about that one more question before we're going to have to sign off here and i'm and, and i feel like i'm sorry because i feel like we could just talk for hours you've got I mean, all this amazing stuff going on one of the things i do like to ask all of our listeners to hear is what's the best advice that you ever got and how did it change you? I would say the best advice that I got, it's probably pretty simple, but someone earlier on say, don't spend time building the business plan. The business plan will come as you build the business. And I do think that if I had spent too much time building the business plan up front, I would have scared myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a big, it's such a big idea. And the fact that I was able to, to, to dive into it and learn it and the business plan sort of shaped itself as I grew sort of allowed me to not put this barrier in front of me. And I, I could have seen that happen if I had sort of put too much uh, thought ahead, I would have, I would have probably never did it, never done it. So, I mean, it's, it's a pretty simple advice for more of an entrepreneur, but I, I do think that it's allowed me to, uh, to build two businesses without thinking too much ahead. I just knew there was an opportunity because of personal experiences and then just went with my instincts. And since then just really learned to follow my instincts. Nobody else will do it for you. <laughs> I always <laughs> know that in the movie social media where Sean Parker comes and he makes everything amazing for Facebook. I always thought like that Sean Parker will come one day. They don't come. And so it's really on me to make the decisions and over time got to trust my instincts that I actually knew 
and, and often sort of thought maybe other people that had done it before would know better. And they really don't. You know your business. You've got to follow your instincts. And, and this is what got me this far. And so as I'm getting older and wiser, definitely sort of trusting that, you know, why would this person know more than I can? You know, I, I know the answers. Well, that, that is wonderful advice. I wish we could talk more, but we'll have to come back and bring you back on the show so we can hear more about the different projects that you're working on, especially the supplier diversity angle. But we are at the end of the show. And thank you. Thank you for sharing your journey, your insights, and for more information about you and Tealbook, where should people go? Yeah, you can go to tealbook.com and uh, please connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm quite active. I do write a lot on business and, and supply chain and procurement and data. And so if you're interested, you can definitely uh, connect with me. Okay, wonderful. All right. Well, Stephanie, thank you. And uh, to all our listeners out there, we thank you. And we look forward to our next show. Stay tuned for more great stories with amazing women. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.